step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Mr. Cornell, are you ready to proceed? I am. Thank you, Governor Sandoval, uh, Attorney General Cortez Masto, and members of the Supreme Court of Nevada. Uh, I'm Richard Cornell. I represent Robert Reed. Uh, before I begin, let me clarify the relief that we're seeking. Um, it would be impractical, I think, to seek relief of having the deadly weapon enhancement sentence run concurrently. Uh, as is noted uh, in the packet, Mr. Reed was granted parole in uh, May of 2007 to the sentence he's currently serving. And if you were to in, in, invoke that kind of relief, that means he would be out uh, serving a lifetime parole without a parole plan that the parole board has seen, and I doubt that anybody has the appetite for that. Uh, what we are seeking is a parole advancement or in the alternative a restructure of the deadly weapon enhancement sentence consistent with the law as it currently is or five to twenty years what that would do uh, is it would make him parole eligible but it would also create a top uh, before mr. Reed being released uh, into society so that that uh, we wouldn't have uh, parole denials ad infinitum um, I have two, I, I, before I have anybody speak, I want to introduce uh, the Reed family to you all as uh, many of them are here. We have Kathy Fricky, who is Mr. Reed's mother. Uh, we have Larry Reed, who is Mr. Reed's father. We have Lisa Black, who is Mr. Reed's sister. We have Richard Reed, who is Mr. Reed's brother. We have Caitlin Black, who is one of Mr. Reed's nieces, and we have Rebecca Black, who is also one of Mr. Reed's nieces. 
uh, and there are others from the community in support of Mr. Reed's uh, petition, I would like to call on Lisa Black and Richard Reed, uh, the, the sister and brother, to speak uh, to try to give you some insights about their brother. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Governor Sandoval, Madam Attorney General Cortez Masto, Justices of the Nevada Supreme Court. For the record again, my name is Lisa Black. I'm Robert Reed's oldest sister. I'm employed as a professor of nursing at the University of Nevada, Reno. Before I begin my remarks, I would like to take a moment to recognize the family of Eric Seeger. Eric's family has remained on the mind and in the hearts of our family over these past 17 years. I would like to take a moment to, I would like to share a perspective of my brother with you that is not seen when you view the pardons petition for NDOC inmate number 46852. As a child who didn't have a consistent male role model in his life after the divorce of his parents and the subsequent death of his stepfather when he was 12, Eric Seeger offered Robert attention, which was something that Robert lacked at that time. Robert and Eric's relationship ended tragically on September 30, 1994, when Robert, as a boy of 16, found himself in a situation that was far beyond his emotional and his developmental ability to manage. By all accounts, the loss of Eric Seeger was tragic. It remains tragic today. Robert has said to me on many occasions that if he had the opportunity, he would take back that day and he would trade places with Eric Seeger. Eric's family lost a son and a brother on that day. And though it pales in comparison to the loss experienced by the Seeger family, in a number of ways our family lost a son and a brother that day also. In July of 1995, at the age of 17, Robert became one of the youngest inmates in the history of the Nevada Correctional System to be sentenced to two consecutive life terms. When one hears of a child of 16 who's committed a murder, the immediate assumption is that that person is a thug or a social deviant. The important thing about Robert is that he was neither of these at the time when Eric Seeger died. Interviews subsequent to Robert's arrest um, that were reported in the media interviewed our neighbors, his teachers, classmates, described Robert as a typical kid, a young, a young boy who had all of the normal um, dreams of a child who participated in the ROTC, was above average student. This 16-year-old boy who attended Reno High School, had a girlfriend, helped his mother at home, and helped his elderly neighbor, was the boy that I knew as my little brother. During the years that Robert has spent in prison, he's matured from a child into a mature and morally principled man who I am now proud to call my brother. Robert has earned a college degree while he's been in prison, and he, he's participated in youth diversion programs where he was able to speak to troubled teens whose own lives were headed in an unhealthy direction. On a very personal level, my own daughter, whom I was pregnant with at the time when Robert was arrested, who is now 17 and is also here in support of Robert today, experienced significant challenges a couple of years ago that led her to take, attempt to take her own life. 
Though Caitlin has never known Robert outside of the prison, Robert was instrumental to Caitlin's healing process. He provided her with hope and inspiration and guidance that could only come from a person who had truly walked in the shoes that she was walking in at that time. As of today, on today, I did this math, Robert has served 17 years, one month, and 16 days in the custody of the Nevada Department of Corrections. On the date of his arrest, Robert was 16 years, three months, and 25 days old. Robert spent just shy of a year longer in prison than he had been alive up to that point, and he has spent every minute of his adult life behind bars. Well, Robert's unfortunate actions and his decisions at that time can't be undone. He's done everything he can from within prison to live his life as a better man and, he, and to make himself ready to begin life as an honorable and respectable life outside of prison. When he's released from prison, should that relief be eventually granted, Robert will have the support of a stable and a loving family that is prepared to help him establish himself as an adult member of a world that he has not experienced since he was a child. Our mother plans to Robert wel welcome Robert into her home and help him through this transition, help him find employment, support him emotionally, and assist him financially. Robert's father has been very involved and supportive of Robert through the years and, and will continue to do so. My brother Richard is here, and our sister Laura lives in New Jersey with two toddlers and is not able to be with us. My daughters and I live 1.5 miles away from the home where Robert will live upon his release, should that be granted at some point to him. If I believed for one second that Robert was potentially a threat to our family or to our society, neither my two daughters or myself would be here on his behalf today. As the Nevada Board of Pardons Commissioners, you have the power and the opportunity to allow Robert the opportunity to live his life in a way that will allow him to truly honor the memory of Eric Seeger. Please allow Robert this opportunity to become a contributing member of society. I have every confidence that he will make you proud for having done so. I'd be glad to address any questions that the board may have. There are none. Thank you, Ms. Black. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Governor, and I'd also call on Richard Reed uh, to speak. Good morning, Governor Sandoval, Attorney General Cortez Mastel, and the Honorable um, Justices of the Nevada Supreme Court. Thank you for this opportunity. As you know, my name is Richard Reed. I'm Robert's brother. Um, a little bit about me. I'm a, I apologize. This is an emotional moment. <laughs> Take your time. <clears throat> I'm a firefighter paramedic um, for the city of Aurora, Colorado. And uh, I owned a business for seven years prior to that. And additionally, I'm an honorably discharged veteran from the United States Marine Corps. <clears throat> I'm here to speak on behalf of my brother, Robert, uh, how he has prepared himself for the possible release of prison, and why I think that today he deserves relief. Like my sister said, the loss of Eric is very tragic no matter which way you look at it. Seeger family did lose a son and a brother. My family has suffered a great loss, but not in comparison. And my condolences and my heart went out to the Seeger family. I was able to express that to them at the parole board um, as we shared a table you know, before we went into the, uh, the parole hearing. 
But through everything, Robert has continued to show immense amount of remorse. Uh, he is focused on his education, resulting into an associate's degree. To my understanding, associate's degree is the highest you can go. I think if he could, he'd probably get a PhD with his time. Uh, he has been involved in the mentoring of the troubled youth, which I know Robert is passionate about, uh, with the hopes of preventing them from following a similar path as he and spending more than half of, more than half of his life in prison. Uh, he has also earned the respect and the support from the correctional officers and the associate warden, who I believe wrote a letter in his behalf. Uh, aside from that, I went to visit Rob a couple days, and a lieutenant of the prison came and patted Rob on the back, and he patted me on the back and introduced himself, and he said that he was in support of today, and he hoped that Rob finds some type of relief. To me, that's a huge testimony of the man that he is. <clears throat> I can't imagine what it would be like to at the age of 16 to go to prison, a 16-year-old boy. But it's remarkable how Robert has matured into who he is today, despite being in prison for over half of his life. I can't tell my firefighter friends I'm getting emotional, okay? <laughs> but one of my favorite moments when seeing Rob <clears throat> is, <clears throat> apologize, how he greets me. He has a warm smile. He has a strong embrace. <clears throat> and I'm just amazed at the time that he has spent in prison hasn't hardened him as you would think. Whenever the topic of conversation turns towards the facts surrounding his incarceration, Robert never focuses on his hardships. As a kid, <clears throat> In the events that led to his involvement with Eric Seeger, he never blames anyone, <clears throat> but he takes responsibility for his actions. I think the way that Robert has spent his last 17 years has prepared him for integration to society. His character, his drive, his compassion has driven him to succeed, in, that has driven him to succeed in prison will continue outside of prison. And I know that his involvement with mentoring youth is far from over. He's expressed that to me. He wants to continue. He's talked to organizations already, and if he can save a life, then I know that will make Robert happen. If you can keep a young boy from entering prison, then that is his ultimate goal. There's nothing that we can do to bring back Eric, but that's Rob's way of making good, making a right out of the situation. Upon release from prison, like my sister stated, Rob has an immense amount of family support. My wife, who can't be here today, we have talked for years on how we're going to help, help my brother. My wife is a very successful professional woman, um, and we are prepared financially, we are prepared in whatever ways that we can help. We're excited and we're hopeful that we get the opportunity to do that soon. And as Lisa mentioned, as well, my number one responsibility to my wife and to my young girls, I have a three-year-old and I have a one-year-old, is to protect them no matter the cost. And if for one reason I thought Rob would be a danger to them or to society, I would not be here, I would not speak in his behalf. And I can guarantee you that. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your consideration. Thank you. Mr. Reed. Uh, thank you, Richard. The reason we're here 
um, is that under the current sentence structure, the next time uh, Mr. Reed would see the parole board uh, with the idea of paroling to the streets would be 2017. And we honestly and fervently assert that he's ready now. He's ready to be a productive member of society now. And we think uh, things in this package bear that out. Uh, consider the email that Penny Burgess uh, wrote. She wrote it to me at my request. She gladly wrote it to me after I spoke to her, and she wrote it in June of 2010, but I'm informed and believes that if she were to write it today, it would read identically the same. She talked about how Mr. Reed's been employed and trained in all aspects of dental prosthetics uh, through that program in the Department of Corrections. Uh, he's been working for over two years in the lab. He progressed into a fine lead technician. He's a true leader who wants to excel in all aspects of the dental lab operations. He's a very personal and considerate of other. And when, when she hires trainees, Robert is there to help train them. He's a great team player. And she concludes by saying, I think Robert would be a great addition to any lab on the outside. What that tells me is that the Department of Corrections has done a great job finding a very marketable skill for this young man, but it also tells me right there that this young man is, is street ready now. I see other things in this package. Um, I look at the report uh, signed off by Warden Palmer and uh, the Associate Warden of Programs who, by the way, I spoke with when I, I spoke with uh, Mr. Reed, and, and she said very positive things to me about this application. Um, I, I, I look at this. I see all the programs that he's done while in prison, including life skills, including AA, although alcohol was not contributory to, this, to the facts of this case, a drug and alcohol program, and problem solving. I see that... He's done very well, having incurred only seven disciplinary notices of charges since 1998 and has been disciplinary free for six years with the exception of a minor charge of unauthorized property in 2010. Uh, I see that there's no indication of any mental illness in his past. I see that there's no past history of drug or alcohol dependency. And in strengths and weaknesses, I see the report saying that the most positive strengths represented by Mr. Reed has been his overall institutional adjustment and prison work and program history. Uh, I see them uh, reciting that he's attained his GED, his high school diploma, and his AA in general studies while incarcerated, and that he's obtained the vocational training as a dental lab technician, and that he's been forthcoming about his involvement in the murder for which he has assumed responsibility. Frankly, what I don't see is weaknesses. Again, this underscores my opinion and belief that this man is street ready now, and, and I think he is ready to embrace society as a whole now, and, and that's why I think he ought to be given the opportunity for that in 2012. I look at the report uh, that you have from the Department of Corrections, the Psychological Review. Um, and I see uh, Marianne Chabot Fence telling you that per the MMPI done by Dr. Loftus, uh, his psychological profile shows a person who is adaptable, friendly, outgoing, and lacking in overt psychopathology, which strikes me as somewhat remarkable for someone who is serving time for first-degree murder. Uh, I would expect somebody serving time for first-degree murder to show elevated signs of sociopathy, and apparently 
that isn't how this turned out, but that's consistent with Dr. Weir's evaluation of Master Reed at time of his sentencing, which we have uh, attached uh, as part of our pardons board package. And finally, and one of the things that makes this case different than a lot of others, and, and you saw it firsthand, is the kind of family that Mr. Reed comes from. Uh, these are middle and upper middle class people who, who are very grounded and also very, very supportive of Mr. Reed. You know, it's extremely unfortunate and we can't rewrite history that, that the criminal homicide in this case happened at a time when the family was fractured and, and the stepfather to whom uh, young Master Reed bonded suddenly died. Uh, but what is true and what you saw is true is how supportive this whole family, including ex-wife and ex-husband, are of their son. And, and I believe that upon being released, this family would step up and, and give him all the support that he needs, all the emotional support, all the financial support, whatever it takes. I see from this family, and I've seen it from really even before I started representing when they first saw me, that they are all extremely committed to Robert as he is to they. Um, that's another reason why I submit to you that this man is street ready now. Not, not 2017, but now. Let me talk a little bit about the facts of the case because the facts of the case always bear into uh, these, these causes. And as I indicated in my letter, we're all at a disadvantage because what happened was uh, Jack Allen uh, of the Allen Group advised Master Reed to plead to first-degree murder with a stipulated life with sentence. There's plead to first-degree murder with a deadly weapon enhancement and a stipulated life with sentence. Uh, with all due respect to my colleague, if I'd had this case based on the facts as I've investigated them and set them forth, I wouldn't have done that. And I'll tell you why. This is not a self-defense case. I'm not here for the moment to suggest otherwise. This is a criminal homicide for which Mr. Reed bears responsibility. However, a stipulated life with per Navarath versus state, it couldn't be life without. Uh, if, if found guilty by a jury, it could only be life with regardless of the position of the victim. Um, so I don't see where Mr. Reed got any plea bargaining consideration for this plea bargain, but moreover, and I won't fault Mr. Allian for this because it was 1994, per Byford in 2000, I don't think the element of deliberation is present in these, this fact pattern. As I've reviewed these facts, I honestly do not believe that Master Reed went over to Mr. Seeger's house with the intent to kill him. I think he went over there with the intent to return the guns. The killing happened after, after Mr. Seeger physically assaulted him, knocked him to the ground, and threatened his mother. And per my review of the facts, particularly the statement of Murray Stravers, who, who was the key witness for the state, albeit somewhat after the fact, I'm convinced that that's what happened. It strikes me that what happened in this case, the killing act, was an act, an, an, an impulsive act of a teenager, of a teenage boy, certainly supportive of second-degree murder. But could this have been advocated as a voluntary manslaughter? Respectfully, I would submit that it could have been. Uh, and, and at the trial, the, the dysfunctional relation between Mr. Seeger and Mr. Reed would have come out. And you know what that is. 
Mr. Seeger was, was running guns and teenage Rob Reed was one of the gun runners. That fact coupled with him being knocked down and, and verbally uh, threatened and, and his mother threatened and, and the fatal homicide occurring a very short time after that, in my view, would have lent itself to a voluntary manslaughter verdict. And I think a reasonable jury in Washoe County could have gone there. I'm not saying they would have gone there. What I'm saying is that I think the choices in this case were between second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. Now, had it been voluntary manslaughter, uh, at that time we didn't have the current sentencing structure. I would anticipate, assuming a denial of a juvie cert motion after that, uh, that the sentence would have been 10 and 10 uh, consecutive. On that sentence, Mr. Reed would have been out and we wouldn't be here. Had it been second-degree murder, at that time I would anticipate what the sentence would have been likely would have been five to life uh, with the consecutive five to life. Under today's sentencing structure, if we had that situation, what, what we would have with enhanced second-degree murder is ten to life, and for the enhancement it would be a term of years, at most eight years to twenty years. So under the current statutory version, you would anticipate that if the state's best case scenario occurred, in my opinion, this man would do 18 years in prison. He's done 17 plus. Again, kind of fitting within, I think, the grid uh, to show that this man is parole eligible. He's really street ready. Uh, the department has done a great job in, in reaching him and, and, and giving him the tools he needs to rehabilitate and, and I see great progress by Mr. Reed in that regard. So uh, I would uh, respectfully urge you to either grant a parole advancement for Mr. Reed or to change the sentence of the deadly weapon from, from 10 to life to the term of years and if, if the idea was to make him parole eligible now, then that would be a five to 20 year term. Um, those are my comments for now. Uh, if you, unless you have questions, I'll uh, turn uh, the matter over to Mr. Reed for his comments. Any questions from board members? Governor, I have a quick oh. question. Mr. Cornell, uh, you indicated there was nothing in this uh, uh, record apparently that would support premeditation or deliberation. And uh, I'm looking through some tramp from the Reno Police Department, specifically Mr. Uh, Andrew Martinez, who indicated that uh, um, he was told uh, specifically that uh, uh, um, your client was going to go over and kill Mr. Seeger. You know what? I and will. He came right back and did it. Right. I will, I will stand corrected then. I, in, in my view, that's uh, teenage braggartism, but yes, you're right. A reasonable jury, if it focused on that to the exclusion of everything else, uh, could come back with a first-degree murder verdict. Quite frankly, with the, with, with the mix of facts, I still maintain, I don't think they would have, but you're right. Uh, they could have, and had they done so, um, with that fact, it probably would have been upheld on appeal had there been a trial. Um, but again, 
based on on Mr. Reed's version of the events and based on Murray Straver's version of the events uh, and the teenage braggadocio besides, I really believe, I, I really in my heart believe that what he was doing was going over there to return the guns when things got ugly. Well, Mr. And, Martinez said that uh, he was leaving his house. As he left Mr. Martinez's house, he said he was going to go over and kill him. And that's what happened. I, I understand that's what he said. So it wasn't... Um, your client bragging it was mr martinez's statement to that effect but at any event uh, i just wanted to clear that up uh, yeah that's fine i mean again we don't know because this case ultimately ended up in a plea but again i don't see how any reasonable judge could have imposed a life without sentence in light of navarath i mean again i don't see this as a case where Mr. Reed got any plea bargaining consideration by virtue of his plea. And, and, and I stand by what I said. If I had this case, I would have tried it. And Mr. Mayor, I don't right. want you to go through. You've stacked about 10 hypotheticals on one another. We understand what your position, what you right. have. And I'm not case. saying a jury wouldn't have returned to first-degree murder. I think it's unlikely. No, but I, I understand. Yeah, you understand my point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in any event... <clears throat> What and the problem is, you have to talk about the facts of these cases, you know. And and when you're talking about murder, uh, you have to talk about ugly facts. Uh, certainly, I'm the first to say that I would rather focus on what this man has done from age 16 to 33 behind bars than that. But we have to talk about it. So, those are my comments. In any event. Uh, Governor, I had just one just question. Justice Gibbons. Uh, Mr. Cornett, how old was Mr. Seeger when this, uh, when the killing took place? He was 33, and if I remember correctly, the relation between Mr. Seeger uh, and Master Reed had gone on for a year. about a year to a year and a half before the homicide, before the criminal homicide. Thank you. Justice Douglas. Mr. Connell, I heard your, your position, and I understand you're the advocate in this case, and you're talking about being street ready. And as you're saying that, what filtered through my head was that whole axiom about paying a debt to society. <coughs> so how do we balance those two things, paying a debt to society and him being ready to come out now? And your rendition of the facts, because I'm... I was punctuated with this statement, and it may be braggadocia from a, a teenage young man, but he's, but supposedly he made a statement that uh, he was bragging about killing the victim on his way back to jail, and that he blew the guy away. Well, we first take into account that we have a, a man who was 16 when he did this, we take into account that all objective testing indicates that this is a young man without sociopathy really then and now. And we take into account that he must be punished for what he did. Uh, and we take into account that he has served 17 years in the Department of Correction or over half of his life. And we take into account that he will be on parole for the rest of his life. And. I guess that's, <laughs> uh, 
I, I guess that's the most straightforward way I can answer your question, Justice Douglas. I, you know, uh, I, I, it, it, we know, we, we have to believe that at some point in time he's going to parole. Uh, everybody came to the table in 1995 believing that. Um, and, and therefore the question that I have is, okay, why not now? Why must we wait another five years? What will another five years accomplish? Um, and I would throw back at you, what is the price of life? Well, it can be life without the possibility of parole. Uh, in which uh, case we're not here. Mr. Cornell, I'm talking about the life that was taken. I understand. We part of the discussion earlier in the day as we talked about the two most heinous crimes, and unfortunately that's what we're hearing, uh, in terms of taking the life of another person. And so now we're left with dealing with the life of the person who took that. So how do we balance? Well, uh... Anytime you t take the life of another, you are going to be punished severely, and, and the legislature has set that out. Um, but what the Nevada Supreme Court recognized in 1989 in the Nalvarath case, uh, which frankly involved facts even worse than these, that was a, a torture murder of a victim in a, in a wheelchair is that when you have a teenager as the perpetrator, that is the kind of fact pattern where we must, as a society, punish the offender but give him the opportunity of a second chance. And, and there's no doubt in my mind with the direction the U.S. Supreme Court is going is that the Nevada Supreme Court got that absolutely correct, uh, thinking about the Graham and Ellis versus Florida case and, and Justice Kennedy's opinion from last year. So there are, there are these facts that we balance as well as the, and the reason for that is because there's a recognition that with the developing juvenile, the brain is not completely formed. The juvenile is, is prone to do impulsive acts that, that a fully grown adult would not do. And I'm convinced that that model holds true for Robert Reed. Uh, I am convinced that what he did uh, was a horrible act and was also a <laughs> horrible impulsive act, the product of a teenage mind. From everything I have seen about Robert and everything I know about Robert, I honestly don't believe he'd do it again. I mean, I really don't. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if that's answering your question or not, Justice Douglas, but I'm not sure how better to answer it. <laughs> I think the best way to answer would be let the inmate answer. I'm sorry. Let the inmate answer those questions. Yes, thank you. Um, Mr. Reed. Thank you, uh, Mr. Governor, thank you. Um, would you like me, Paraguay, to answer or Sorry, I'm not sure how to <laughs> Answer your last name. I can't pronounce it either. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I guess I'll go, I'll start with yours because I've been thinking about, it. you know, um, when all this happened and I went towards uh, my friend Andy and uh, Murray Stravers, you know, 
I admitted to them that that I was more involved with selling guns with Eric Seeger, and me and Murray originally had something going on that, and um, I made such a foolish decision in going over to Eric's house and stealing guns uh, when we promised. And when I finally took it to him, and this was after you know Eric left uh, death threats on my answer machine, and Murray talked to him. We were bantering about, man, and we were di we were having all these ideas. I was like, well, what should I do with these guns? I, I honestly didn't know. I was like, should I just deep six them and throw them in Virginia Lake? You know, uh, uh, he was verbally threatening my life over the phone to Murray Stravers. And, uh, yes, I did make the statement. I was like, well, why don't, if he's just going to shoot me, why don't I go over there and shoot him? I want you, this panel, to know that it was just something said facetiously, you know, uh, and sarcastically. I never had any intention to go over there and do that. And uh, I wanted to just be done with the problem. I wanted to go over there. And honestly, I felt that since I got myself into the situation with Eric in the first place, that somehow I would be man enough to get myself out of it. And those were honestly what I was thinking at that moment. Um, and I went over to Eric's, and I, I, I tried to talk to him. And I told him that, uh, yeah, I, in fact, had his guns. Um, and then he attacked me. Uh, he beat me down. And, uh, uh, I, and I was armed. I, I did have a gun. Um, to kind of hash back on that, uh, one of the things that Martinez and... Uh, Murray was saying, it was like, you know, you shouldn't go over there without protection because he has plenty of guns in his house. So that's what I did. And, uh, you know, man, that was such a wrong move. And uh, so he comes out and, you know, he strikes at me and takes me down and beats me up a little bit, kicks me a couple times in my face. Um, he jumps up, runs back into his house, and, and I get up. I go in there, and, and I tell Eric, I said, Eric, I'm sorry, man. Uh, listen, man, uh, you know, I just want to be this done. You know, you can drive me over to my house. I'll give you your guns, and uh, we can be through with this. And let's just, please, let's just make it go away. And I, uh, uh, he yelled at me, and he was yelling a lot of profanity and talking about how I wasn't going to get away with stealing his guns and that he was going to kill me. Uh, it may not be then. It could be one morning. I might just not wake up. And, um, and then he told uh, me that my mom, she, he said that uh, I'll kill your mom. And, uh, you know, she might not wake up. And... Uh, I, I didn't think about anything. I just, it was like, so it was an impulse, and I pulled the gun, and I, I shot it at Eric, and uh, I wasn't even sure if I even hit him. It was just, I don't know, it just happened so quick. And when I realized that the gun went off, I just had like a flight response, and uh, I just, I fled. I fled that night, and I later learned uh, around like 11 o'clock at night that, um, that he died from his wounds. And uh, 
I immediately seek counsel with Murray Stravers and Andy and you know uh, their advice to me at that time was like well you need to get somewhere you need to make an alibi you know and the one thing that I know today that my biggest fault back then was I was really influential and I just listened too much to other people and I didn't stop and be man enough to make my own decisions and do the right thing and uh, you know and I've been paying for that for the last 17 years and you know I um I, I can honestly say you look all everybody in this council in, in the eye and say that I didn't plan to murder Eric Seeger I swear to God on that I didn't and you know things just happened man and I hope that kind of answers that question uh, Justice Douglas as far as here's the value of life you know life is priceless you know I mean uh, you can't value life and uh, and I took a life and uh, the courts you know gave me life for it and I just been trying to do everything that I possibly can to better myself um, like Mr. Cornell said that um, I really took an interest in wanting to talk to juveniles and uh, hope that the guys that were in my position wouldn't never be in that position again and um, end up following the same road that I did you know and uh, there's not a day that I that goes by that I don't just sit there and I think and I can see with my own eyes just looking out in the open and and seeing that night unfold you know and uh, Eric Seeger didn't deserve that you know and man I I wish I could bring him back you know and you know it's just something I gotta live with you know and I mean I don't really know much more to say you know on that I just can only hope that uh, you know what I'm saying just kind of clarifies those things and uh, you know I've uh, you know I've just tried to work real hard to do my time you know it uh, it was difficult at times you know coming to prison at uh, 16 years old going straight to a uh, Nevada State Prison you know and having people uh, you know uh, plotting on you because you're a kid you know being around sexual predators you know and then uh, you know and I had to fight you know and I, and I know that's not you know any excuse some people always tell you all oh, that just comes with the territory you know but I had to do things in prison that I wasn't proud of you know to you know make it to where I'm at today you know and uh, you know I just uh, it, it took a really big toll a real impact on me and uh, I, I've always told myself man that you know I can't let I don't want to let anybody see the go the road that I went down you know and uh, you know I I wanted to change the person I was when I was 16 years old and I've, I've tried everything humanly possible 
to do that. You know, um, I've gotten educated, um, not just in, you know, this dental lab stuff, but I've got a college degree. I've got like 90 college credits, my high school diploma and GED. You know, uh, I've done a whole myriad of programs that the prison offers. And, in, and I want to thank prison officials, too, for offering those programs, you know, and uh, having them there for people like myself to be able to grasp onto them, take hold of them, and uh, succeed, you know, so that we come to a day like this or someday in the future that I come up for a poll board that uh, that everybody knows that I've done what I've could and that they can be safe in knowing that if they let me out on the streets, you know, that I'm going to be a productive member of society, you know, and, you know, it, it would be, It'll be a good decision. It won't be uh, one of folly, and it won't be one of disappointment. And um, I just, you know, I just, I just tried. So, I mean, I've been trying so hard to get to this this point today. You know, and uh, I just, I just hope that all of you, uh, you know. You know, look into me and see that you know there there has been change, and you know, and see my my sincerity and all this, and that I can somehow answer all your questions. And you know, I just I want to go home to my family. You know, I mean, I like my sister said, my brother. You know, I've lived over one year more in prison than I've been alive on the streets, and uh, I was just a, a kid back then, and I was stupid. Foolish, you know. I figured that that I wanted to be something or something in in other people's eyes, and it was just stupid. It was really it was really stupid, and you know, it took a lot of years to change that person that I was then. And uh, you know, I, I just hope that this panel uh, this board uh, gives me you know, some favorable action. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Reed. Any further questions from the board for Mr. Reed? I had a question, uh, uh, Governor. Justice Perigary. Uh, for Mr. Cornell. Um, the victim's uh, mother had an opportunity to speak at the sentencing, uh, didn't she? Correct. And uh, her position was that she did not oppose the possibility of parole and that um, uh, uh, if he uh, could prove that he rehabilitated himself according to certain court guidelines. Do you, Correct. Does that, do you recall that? Are you uh, looking through the record? Right. In fact, I attached that sentencing transcript in tab three. That, that is what happened. And this, uh, did Mills Lane sentence this? Who sentenced this? Yes, he did. Yeah. On that point, uh, Mr. Reed, you look familiar to me. Did you ever come back to Department 9 uh, on any post-conviction hearings? I succeeded Mills as the trial judge. And, uh, uh, yes, sir. I, I believe my uh, uh, appeals after the district court um, eventually did go uh, to uh, District 9. Yeah. And um, 
and then so on and so forth, right? Right. And I think they were thrown out on a time bar, weren't they? Yes. Uh, yeah. That's, this refreshes my memory. Uh, I tendered this, well, I'll discuss that in a moment, but I tendered this case in part because I remembered Mr. Reed and the facts of this case, and also because I continue to be astonished at the success that he's achieved as a 16-year-old who entered prison and has arrived at this point in his life. And um, I tendered this case to the board for the specific reason of this circumstance. Quick <clears throat> question, Governor. Mr. Madam Attorney General. Thank you. Mr. Reed, uh, there's a discipline in your history in 2005 regarding uh, organized work stoppage and threats to staff. Can you talk a little bit about what occurred there? Uh, yes, ma'am, I, I will actually. Uh, uh, in 2005, uh, Warden Donay took over NSP, and um, there was a lot of rumors going around that uh, because he, he took all the programs from the institution, and, um, you know, there was people that were visibly uh, upset about it, and um, there was talks and uh, rumors about people uh, not going to chow on a Saturday, or uh, I think it was like the whole day. And um, so everybody heard the story, everybody entertained it, it was like whatever. Me personally, I thought whatever, no, nothing, you know, it's bull crap. You know, I mean, sorry about the words, but I just didn't think it was going to happen. And there was people yelling, I lived in the cell house at the time, people running up and down yelling about it and uh, so I didn't pay it no heed well the next day um, myself and three other inmates were uh, rolled up or they arrested us put us in uh, administrative segregation and uh, uh, three days later we got sent to Ely and um, when I got to Ely, I, you know, I was just really dumbfounded. I was like, what the heck is this about? I finally, uh, when the caseworker up there came to see me, they, they said, you know, you're being charged with the MJ-2825, the one is work stoppage, and uh, the one's is threats. And um, I was just completely dismayed by it. I mean, I had nothing to do with what, and, and I la later found out that, um, it was by uh, anonymous uh, kite is what we call a request form that was written saying that me and three other inmates, one of them that I didn't even know, um, instituted this whole thing. Um, so, I, so I told my case worker up there and when I went to disciplinary, I told him everything that I knew about the whole situation. And, um, and I told him, hey, you know, I've always been upfront and personal and, and uh, uh, truthful with the correctional officers. You know, if it was something that I did, hey, I've got no problem saying, you know what, I did that. You know, I got no problem taking responsibility for that. Um, and it was, it was the first time that I got hit with something like this for something I didn't do. And I, I know that, you know, Maybe that's not the unpopular thing because people may think that, oh, you're just making excuses for it. But I fought it out up there. 
they end up dropping the MJ-25, which was the threats. They showed that there was no threats. How could I threaten a whole yard and plus staff? Um, the, wor the word out of the caseworker's mouth was at the time he said, Nevada State Prison is pushing this move of e you guys going to Ely. We have to find you guilty of an MJ-28. So on, on tape, on interview, I told him, you know, pretty much how I felt about that, which, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't, uh, I'll be truthful with you, I didn't use kind words on there, you know, and um, they gave us uh, 90 days disciplinary segregation. Um, I want to note that, you know, before that, um, I was working in the laundry, I was the lead computer clerk, and I didn't have a write-up. My write-up before that was in 1998, and um, it was for uh, taking too long in the shower. So, uh, and, uh, um, so I didn't have no write-ups that whole time. I worked, I had a great, great job. Um, you know, my little, I guess my little world that I created for myself at that prison, you know, was a good spot for me to, you know, just kind of coexist, not get in trouble, and just do my time, and and then try to program and do good. Most of my programming, like my uh, college degree, came uh, from Nevada State Prison. Um, so, I did ultimately, I believe, eight months in Ely for that. And then uh, prison officials up there were like, well, your points are low and, you know, we didn't really want you up here on this anyway, so they transferred me to High Desert. Um, I went down there for a year and a half. Um, I worked uh, for the canteen there for about six months, and then my last six months I was there, I worked for the High Desert State Prison High School where um, I taught other kids how to do uh, computers, uh, you know, basic office, the suite, um, Windows XP, uh, AutoCAD, so, uh, such and such forth. And then each time, because all my family is mostly up here, every six-month review, I uh, put in for a transfer up north here. And then, like I said, after about a year and a half, I finally got the transfer uh, to a Northern Nevada Correctional Center. And, and that's where I've been housed since, uh, I think, the end of January 2008. And uh, I've been working in dental lab now for uh, three, and, three and a half years, and I'm the lead uh, clerk in there. Thank you. You're welcome. Any further questions? Mr. Helzer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.